Welcome to another Sky Sessions, the Skyweaver podcast with Just Dad Bacon, Sidus, and myself, Blank Candle. It's been a grueling week on Ladder for many. Let's talk about that. And we still have some changes from Patch 108 to cover. We'll get into that as well. Um, let's start. What do you? What have you been observing, Sidus? Uh, so, as we predict, uh, personally on the rain, I'm seeing a lot of iris. And when I don't see the iris, I mostly will be seeing Zoe. And unfortunately, both of them are running Sophia Titan. So this is just a week of Sophia Titans on the ladder for most of the players, I suppose. And uh, in terms of, of my personal play, I play Banjo and City Lu. And comparing to <laughs> Sophia Titan, I will say these kind of decks are probably more feared. So uh, if I play into agility and lay, they get their Sophia Titans on, on curve, and by on curve, I mean it costs zero anyway. Uh, I I have a worse win rate after Hexmall Invasion released this week. So yeah, this is not a best meta in my opinion so how's your games bacon yeah this ain't a very great week for dig either unfortunately i've got all these wacky cool top end things i really want to do and i keep having to cut my cool stuff and i keep having to cut my curve to try and keep up with these wacky iris decks it's uh it's less than ideal for me personally yeah i was having a pretty bad struggle to begin the week as well i was playing some homebrew decks uh experimenting with uh like a mummy city for a while and then i didn't hit grand weaver like almost the first week so i switched over to dig trying to get some um wins and i, I was doing okay with dig but it really did struggle against the iris that we're seeing in a lot of soul pirate decks Recently, the last couple of days, I switched over to Grave City, and I've actually been seeing really good success with Grave City and uh, been able to win most of my games with that deck. It's an interesting variation. It doesn't run like Phoenix Plume or Molten Heart, um, but a lot of removal and... Um, I don't know. I think it's one of the, one of the successful decks, but I think, you know, we talked a little bit about it when we last week, and right. I mean, we spent like five seconds on Sajin Secrets, and I said it was good, and then now at six cost, it's been pretty unbearable. I think we don't need to talk too much about that change again today because I expect that to be at least somewhat reverted. Go back to at least seven. What do you think? Yeah, it's just way too many stats, especially for Wisdom, because a lot of like Wisdom cards are designed around having very high health, but very low power. So it's supposed to be that like the Wisdom player can always like throw stuff down, and yeah, it's kind of hard to deal with, but they can't really mount pressure, or at least that's how it was supposed to be according to like the uh, old Designing Sky articles. But now between like Singen Secrets and like the two mana Shield Bash. And Glizzy's off a of Glizzbot to just scale up incessantly. Wisdom units are uh, very sticky and very threatening at the same time. And it's quite difficult to deal with. 
Well, and uh, Scarred Servitor, too, um, making them attack with health. I've seen, uh, I was in a game this week where someone put out a Glizbot and then turn two was able to side in secrets it and play uh, Axe Total or, um, and by turn four with Double Crystal, they had, uh, I think, 24 damage on board. Yeah, I, I think uh, after the three mana cost turn, you cannot let Wisdom have any high health units standing on the board. Because even, uh, you mentioned Exodoto, so it's a tighter stack, but even with Wisdom Prison itself, uh, they run Scar Servitor and Run Visage, so after four mana turn, th these guys can drop uh, in, in, if, if they manage to draw them. And I mean, if on if on turn four they drop run visage on something with let's say ten health and you don't have any hard removal, you are in huge trouble. So, uh, basically, the uh, the wisdom prison right now is asking they often to remove anything if possible before turn four, and I mean. We have been seeing Strange Prison performing pretty well after the Hasbound Invasion, and uh, we discussed it on the podcast multiple times. And one of the uh, major reasons is uh, a Strange Prison have some best early removal, uh, I mean single target removal in the game, and we are talking about Strike Now, Arcane Ray, and Thunder. And uh, all these cards are dealing direct damage and by good removal we are talking about their mana efficiency uh, strike now is uh, dealing three damage for one mana and that's the best uh, ratio in the game currently and if you use thunder and something with god or armor it's do dealing five damage for two mana and this is also the most damage you can deal with two mana um, and before we can cheat so many states on the board early, and by cheating I mean playing something like Signal Secrets or Glissy from Glissy Port, uh, these trench prison removal spells are really, really good at killing stuff. So uh, before patch 108, the reason that these strange based rules can perform well is that they have the best early units in the game and also best early removals in the game. But after patch 108, this is no longer the case. So we, we are also seeing these strange based rules slowly fading out from the meta right now. Yeah, it just doesn't have the tools to fight for board against these other decks anymore. I'm going to call out a really funny moment from my stream the other night. I was playing against... Uh, I think it was Iris, and she had a huge Glizbot. I was playing City, and I had Wed Dead. And one of my people in chat just yelled out, like, you got to marry that hot dog robot. Yeah, that's I thought one. that was a really, really good Skyweaver sentence. Yeah. And I did marry that hot dog robot. Yeah, what else can so. you do against it? I would just like to say, I have been unable to... Uh find anything from the old PTS for it, or like testing, but I knew the whole freaking time that that's 
stupid robot is an absolutely whack card. So you remember, it used to be like a 2-mana 0-5. And then like it got brought down to like 0-4. And like, I didn't say anything because I don't want to just like rag on cards that nobody are playing. But like, everybody should have known that the 1-mana buff spell that just ramps and ramps and ramps your units is absolutely insane. Yeah, I've always found that card scary to go against because you have to keep a lot of things in mind when playing against it, and you have to be aware of, one, your hand size so that you're getting the glizzies too, but also aware of when you're using them to best give them pressure or force them to use their glizzies. And you're basically happy when the glizzies run out. Um, so it's it, something you have to think about, but it's always a scary card to run into because um, it can shorten a game dramatically. Well, it's just really volatile. Like, if it comes mm -hmm. down on turn three or so, I mean, it's just a little, like, 1-5. But the fact that it can just keep buffing, and if you don't immediately kill it, it can turn those buffs onto itself. And because it comes with one attached, your opponents will just always be outpacing you on it. It uh, can just very quickly steal games away. Yeah, uh... I think what you just say works for most of the cheat cards. And I think the main issue uh, about these Iris deck is that they just have too many tools to, to cheat. So you, if, if you are playing a fair deck, and by fair deck I mean your, your tempo curve is more consistent without spikes like those uh, cheat card bring to the games such as Dream Calling or Undergrowth or, or even Undergrowth and such. So uh, Wisdom have a lot of, of cheating mechanics right now. So if you are playing a, a fair deck, you have to deal with uh, probably Manlong and Gleasy Board and Rim Resage and something with Shout Up. And also, if anything survives, you have to deal with Shell Bash as well. And Iris also uh, makes some very good cheat units in agility, so you probably have to deal with Bloodletter as well, and you will be dealing with Soulpire Titan. And uh, the curve of this cheating unit is really, really uh, versatile. So almost every turn after like 3 mana or 4 mana turn, they will be dropping a threat that you will have to deal immediately or you will be very very behind on tempo and i think the cheating mechanics in card scan is fun only if uh they only have two or three cheating mechanics in a single deck but right now if you run if you run iris basically you can cheat you can run a lot of cheating cards in your decks to a to a degree that almost every turn you are cheating something. And that's not fun because um, we will categorize decks into two different types. Uh, for example, uh, Adadu has been performing well at the early stage of patch 108. And what Adadu does is that they just try to develop as many states onto the board as possible every turn. But uh, when they spend some mana, uh, they will not be getting states that is not supposed to happen with that mana. So you kind of expecting 
you kind of know how much they, they will be dropping next turn. And the game for you is to try to deal with those state uh, on those those turn. But uh, it's not like easy, but it's not really 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 easy because a uh, strange base do has been defining uh, how much mana efficiency is the best in the game when they develop their board. And another type of, of the deck is cheating decks. And cheating decks uh, usually will be sacrificing some sort of, of tempo. Uh, for example, if if you want to cheat uh, turn for dream calling and you need five elements in your hand, and on turn three, you have exactly four elements. Now, if you play a, a card onto the board or you, you play a sun spell, you will lose one element from your hand. So you are kind of limited to, uh, uh, you're kind of forcing into a choice. Do I want to uh, drive past my turn to play Dream Calling next turn or do I want to play something? So let's say you drive past the turn. So you sacrifice this, you are sacrificing your tempo on that turn for a, a, a huge tempo swing on the next turn. So that's how cheating uh, works in the card game most of the time. You have to sacrificing tempo or, or other resources in order to cheat in the next turn. So this brings uh, tempo spikes. And by tempo spikes, uh, I mean uh, cheating decks can be gaming like one tempo on turn one and zero tempo on turn two, or and five tempo on turn three, or, or and zero tempo on turn four again, and so on and so forth. Uh, so uh, this bring surprise element into the game, which is I think is a pretty pretty healthy for the game because uh, when you play card game, you really want these surprise elements and uh, intense gameplay. But uh, if you can simply cheat every single turn. Uh, you are basically increasing the stable tempo curve of something like Adalu. And if you increase the curve to a degree, the game is no longer fair. It, it's all about if you draw those cheating cards or not. So that's my two cents. Yeah, I'll just say I generally agree with you, Sidus. I will mention, I'm not sure... Surprise, I think, is good for, like, spectators. Because, you know, like, surprising things, everybody, like, watches that. I don't think that that's necessarily the best for players, always. There are going to be times where it's good. There's times where, like, it can be, like, relief or tension or such. But if, like... I'm thinking more so in a latter sense, with, like, your dream calling example, where I queue up against, like, random wisdom player, and then it's okay. On turn one, they could be playing some aggro thing because wisdom is good at aggro. They could be playing some control thing because wisdom is good at control. Or they could be playing some combo thing because wisdom is good at combos. I don't know. I do a basic turn one play. They don't do anything. Cool, I have no new information. Turn two, I do my turn two things. They pass. Alright, cool. Well, I've probably ruled out aggro, but I don't know if they have any wacky combos or anything. At that point in the game, there's not really much that I can do if they do have a combo. I couldn't have chosen my opening hand better. And even if I like know the meta really well, I can't actually use that to guarantee that they are a specific combo deck. At best, I kind of have to do like weighted probabilities and figure out, well, what is the uh, worst possible outcome I want to avoid and all of that. And I think that that kind of gets... Uh, 
I think that moves us a bit too close to poker, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah. This and is why we need they, deck they... preview, guys. Come on, give me deck preview. <laughs> How would you envision deck preview working, Bacon? Uh, so at the start of the game, you know how you can open your deck? Mm -hmm. You can open your opponent's deck. Wow! And it is also open for the rest of the game. It blacks out cards that your opponent has like played or revealed in their hand or in their discard pile or otherwise removed. It's just um... like it's just like a tournament setting where you know what cards your opponent has. I don't think that in a competitive card game, the game should be around like trying to guess what your opponent has and doesn't have. I don't think there's a lot of skill expression in doing so. Sometimes there can be. Like, oh, they ran these two cards, so I know they're trying to set up this combo. Like, that's cool. That's skillful. But I think we can have a even better skillful game if it's like, okay, I know they have these threats and these things, so I want to c preserve these resources, and now we're playing, like, fourth-dimensional chess, trying to, like, juggle our answers against each other, and, oh, shoot, they forced us out. What am I going to do? Okay, backup plan. We'll use these cards to deal with that later. We'll try and rush them here. And uh, I just think that, that makes better games. I know that I enjoy, like, my tournament games a lot more than my ladder games. Well, whenever I play tournament games. <laughs> uh, what if they, they just show the mana curve of the opponent deck? Because... Uh, that would certainly be better. Somebody... Or certainly be better yeah. than what we have now. That might be a good compromise. Yeah, because I really want to uh, keep some secrets in my decks. Personally, I have been enjoying, uh, for example, I, I take a very popular deck on the ladder I, and I secretly uh, change two or three cards that do some wacky thing if uh, the opponent is not prepared and I queue into the rank. And my opponent uh, play normally just as I am some sort of meta decks and suddenly in, in, in a certain turn, I drop a card that was not in the meta decks, but was added by me uh, into the deck. And uh, if they don't have answer immediately, they might be in trouble. So uh, I think tournament setting, um, they do make fair games, but they, they really, really decrease the <laughs> surprise element of the cost game to a degree that, well, Personally, I don't like it, but I respect the fact that some players might be wanting this kind of format so they can plan at the very beginning of the game. Yeah. I mean, ideally, you have some setup where people can just queue for the mood that they like, but you'd need a really big player base for that, like Magic yeah, has. Yeah, as well. I've always felt like uh, it's a good expression of strategy knowing or at least having a good idea of what your opponent's running based on the meta or based on what you've seen them play either earlier that game or in the past. And it just is another level of play that, you know, new players or experienced players or learning players don't quite get. And when you can learn and watch and ex unlock that skill, it feels good and you feel like you're progressing in the game. And I, I, I'm a fan of that. I mean, it, and to make a poker analogy, not saying it's similar to poker, but when you start playing poker, you play your hand. And then at some point you start looking 
at what you think the opponent might have, and it starts becoming a more complex and interesting game. Oh yeah, yeah. I yeah, don't I think the I don't think that there's no skill in the uh, current format of you bring your deck. I bring mine. What's in it? Who knows? We'll find out. Because, like, there are a lot of, like, cool things that you can see in that. Like, if your opponent uh, is attacking your units literally every turn for seemingly no reason, pretty good indication that they are running Soulfire Titan. If they are an Agi deck but not doing that, pretty good indication that they do not have access to the full roster of cards. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I, think, I think that, like, we can do even better than that, is my point. Yeah. Mm. Well, when I heard you say that, well, my mind went to... Because I haven't played a game like that. I've never played a card game that you could see the other person's deck throughout. I have played tournaments where you knew beforehand what was in their deck. Um, but I've always just memorized like some key points, you know, like outlier cards and the basic theme of the deck. Because if I try and remember every card, I'll get lost in when I'm playing them. But well, when I heard you say... Go ahead. Yeah, that's why you'd be able to access their deck list in the middle of the game. Um, yeah, well, when I heard you say that, I had this weird, interesting idea that uh, would actually probably you would hate because it would add more randomness and luck in, into the game, but where you can expose, you know, like a small section of cards, like five cards to give you an idea of what type of deck they're running. Oh. Just before honest... the game, you see five cards. It'd be interesting. Honestly, that could... I would have to think more about that mood, but that could be really cool, too. Like, if it's a random sample of five cards, like, okay, would that be representative? Not particularly in any individual game, but over time. Uh, we actually went over this in one of my political science classes yesterday. Regardless of distribution of whatever population you're looking at, if you just take enough random samples your average mean of those samples will eventually have a normal distribution close enough to the actual mean of the sample that you're looking at. So if you just sample random five cards from your opponent's deck, I feel like that probably would get you pretty close to the idea of what your opponent's deck is going for, and only in rare instances would you not have an idea. That's interesting. I don't, I don't know if that would be ideal, but I like the idea. Lots of options in a card game, that's for sure. I mean, card games are as old as time, and we've tried everything, but we can try it in different ways. Yeah, honestly, I'm partially stealing the idea from uh, how Pokemon does like their competitive... Uh, Pokemon the game proper, not the uh, trading card game. They used to have where your teams, like, you know, you'd bring all of your Pokemon, your opponent would, and you'd have no clue what the opponent's team was. So there used to be all of these, like, strategies, especially whenever the online ladder came around, where basically you would have, like, random, they were called, like, suicide leads, where it'd be like, oh, I open with this, it sets up, like, hazards, and then it uses explosion, or whatever. And there's not really a ton you could do about that. They'd have other, like, situations where people would just have, like, these really weird obtuse teams and like if you knew what it was you'd beat it no problem it could never be like competitive in an actual tournament setting but it was entirely exploiting the information asymmetry to actually win games and whenever they actually introduce team preview which doesn't let you see the opponent's moves held items or any of those things just what pokemon they're running suddenly their competitive scene became a lot more competitive in my opinion 
you had a lot less of what I consider to be, like, janky strategies, where it's like, ah, half of these Pokemon aren't even supposed to do anything. They're just supposed to, like, oh, you don't have this one thing, I guess I win now. I don't, I don't really like those kinds of games. I want, like, a more normalish distribution of games. And Team Preview worked very well for uh, that, so I have an expectation that it worked well here. Yeah, I think uh, those formats are kind of necessary for a tournament, but uh, for casual play like ladder, uh, if you introduce open team composition or deck list to the players, uh, it will uh, widen the gap between good players and bad players really because good players know how to make the most use out of that information but bad players probably uh, will not be even checking the opponent's deck list and uh, I think it's really good for the pro game community if bad player can beat good players in under some circumstances for example if the good players try to uh, guess the bad players deck list and they fail to do so so they keep, they keep a, uh, and not not identical starting hand and eventually coast land again uh, it's a really feels good moment for the bad players and we all know that 50% of the player base will be good and 50% of, of other players will be bad so um in combination, I think this kind of surprising element is really bringing the uh, average gaming experience of all players uh, to be increasing instead of decreasing. So I think that's also a point to be considered. Yeah, I can see value in uh, equalizing between like higher skilled players and lower level players at some levels. But I feel like, especially, like, at the early levels of play, that's the part where you, like, most want to stray the players. Because you don't you don't want good players hanging around at the low levels for too long. Because those good players are just going to absolutely demolish a bunch of new people. You want to get them out as quickly as possible and move them up to their equivalent levels of play. So that way they are, you know, not taking all the new players and taking them out behind the shed. Now, maybe you still, maybe that happens regardless of if there's an open deck list and you don't have open deck lists except for like conquest because that's already like a more competitive mode, or maybe it comes online at a certain rank level, or again, maybe it's a special queue or whatever. I don't know, but, uh, I don't think that it's, I feel like there are still advantages even at the lowest levels. Uh, yeah. I think if you are introducing open deck lists on Conquest, I will support it way more than bringing it to the whole game. Oh, thank you, Cytus. I'll put you on the petition. <laughs> I uh, I do know some Conquest players, and this is um, not calling them out or anything. It's totally within the realm of what you can and can't do in the game. I just know some Conquest players because, especially right now, there's only a few people playing Conquest. Um, once you match up against one, you have it in your match history, and you can look at their deck list, and then when you play them next time, you can open up a new tab and have their deck list open right next to you while you're playing them. Uh, you only have to play them once, and then you know every time you queue against them in Conquest, or you can suspect that you already have their deck list. Yeah, yeah. like, 
just in case, like, there's, like, you know, this probably isn't the most known information, uh, for, like, any of the, like, closed beta tournaments that, like, I and a lot of other people competed in, uh, any of the Burger Buddies things, literally, you had your opponent's deck at the start of the match, and all you were going to do is open their deck list right when the match started and just look at it. Let's go back to the cards for a second. We still haven't finished patch 108, and we're talking about wisdom, and we're talking, and we somehow completely haven't mentioned this yet, and it is part of the issue we have. We're seeing, I, I wouldn't say it's an issue necessarily, as it's just one more thing to add to the pile of things we're seeing with wisdom and Iris, and that is the blight cards all got buffed. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And in my experience so far, I think I've been in one game where Blight actually decided the game by its intended purpose of making you draw it frequently. But I've played many games where Blight is just kind of in there, even maybe just Blight Crafter or Blight Bishop Blight Crafter just in there. And what it does or what it has done in my experience is it kind of screws up your Storm's Echo or your Ether Surge, or a lot of these big spell decks, it's been like a really nice counter to them without having to sacrifice many tech choices to make a huge counter. And the other thing it counters, um, sorry, Cytus, it counters your Axel Zomboid deck because out of Jacko and out of Carrion Crow, now you're getting Blights instead of. Um, Breach the gate. Breach the gate. Yeah, yeah I hate bright. <laughs> yeah, I'm just gonna say it. I'm pretty, pretty darn sure. I do not know anything, and even if I did, I could not say. But that's not accurate. I have absolutely no clue. I'm very sure that there are going to be more blight cards added to the game. Because I mean, I like, look at it. We've got blight crafter, uh, blighted bishop, and hexplosion. That's three. In this whole, like, expansion, like, it's a big sub-theme for Wisdom. It's like, oh my gosh, here's a new mechanic. Here is maybe what Mill is going to look like in Skyweaver. And we get three cards? No. No, there are certainly more coming down the patch. So what do I think with that information? I think it was buffed, like, preemptively. Or not preemptively, prematurely. Especially, like, freaking Bright Blight Crafter. Like, it is a 3-mana 2-6. Okay, so, like, we have Olifant stats. And Olifant has shield. No other text effect, but you know, shield, 2-6, it's in strength. That's pretty darn good. It has the same guard. It trades the shield for wither. Probably a downgrade. Not strictly a downgrade, but probably a downgrade. And then also it gets this really cool text effect where every time it takes damage, it just like shoves two blights into your opponent's decks. It's just free burn damage, and I don't really like that. I mean, it's just, it's just adding more stat creep to Wisdom, which is already kind of an overstatted prism, especially when you consider just how good having a lot of health is. It kind of adds this weird, like, yeah, it disrupts a lot of things, which, I mean, is kind of the function of the card, but I just think that, like, especially down the road, we're just going to have more better Blight cards, and this will just have to be nerfed again. Yeah. Yeah, my issue with is it is that it seems like People are putting it in with no consideration towards building their deck around or anything. They're just getting a, a bonus of 
screwing up other people's tech choices, screwing up other people's life totals and their draws, and it's really costing them nothing. They're just getting a bonus, and they're putting in good cards. And, hey, look, I do this as well as everything else, all these other cheat SIS calls at mechanics and all these other crazy things. And on the top of it, I'm also putting cards that you don't want in your deck, in your deck. Cost me nothing. Yeah, Blightcrafter is just too free. It also has this weird effect where it is good enough to run against Iris decks in the mirror that you still want to keep it around, but Iris decks actually uniquely benefit relative to other non-Iris decks from having it, because you can play things like Bloodletter and Soul Pyre Titan and Dash for the Cup, so you actively get to take advantage of the recoil effects that your opponent is putting into your deck, unless you play Iris, in which case it is just free disruption on top of a overstatted body. Yeah, I, th I think the main issue is the combination of God and Wizard. So if you look at anything that comes with God and Wizard, so for example, let's look at Brightcrafter. Uh, if the opponent does not have a removal spell and it have to trade something uh, into this unit, uh, they will be damaged by the Wizard effect, which is uh, which means minus minus two minus two for one of their units, and Brightcrafter uh, has six heals and God. So let's basically mean uh, heal six for your hero. So if you uh, look into this card, this card from another perspective, it's three calls heal six and minus two minus two, which is already good. And the same reason was for Bright Brighted Bishop as well. I mean six mana four eight. God is not bad, and now it has wizard, so it has some sort of um, weapon up weapon option from for enemy units, and both of these cards is in wisdom prison. So we all know that wisdom is good at cheating. So in order to counter the the way that a player cheat another a, a lot of save onto the but usually you will be uh, expecting the meta shifting into a, a slower format. So you will see more hard removal being run and more control decks because these are really good at dealing uh, threat on the board and they do, do not really care about uh, how much state they run. For example, uh, cards like uh, Germinate, Judgment, uh, Waterline are seen in more control decks comparing to mid-range deck and aggro decks. And the issue of these bright cards is that uh, even if in a meta that uh, composed by so much Western decks and their splits, uh, if you run a control deck that we just mentioned and uh, you try to go into the late game, they can still uh, manage to put a lot of bright into your decks. So um, before Patreon 8, we do have certain meta that a lot of players are playing cheating decks, but control decks will always be able to uh, uh, deal some sort of trouble to these combo decks if they manage to drag the game into the late, late game. But if now you play some you play any wisdom decks and you just play Brightcrafter and Brighted Bishop and let's say you play you put twelve bright 
into the afternoon stacks, which is uh, not really that hard, I would say. And now the game went into the late game, and the cards in player stacks got less and less, and the chances they, they will draw, draw a bright on their next turn keep increasing and in increasing. And before they really have the inevitability, their hero skills will be in a huge danger. And also, since Iris is the most popular de dex in the meta, uh, they also have a lot of threat that can deal massive damage in one turn. And by low threat, I mean show badge on any surviving bodies, or even uh, Manlong uh, with its attachment plate. So, um, this control deck is already having a, a very, very hard time after Clash of Inventors and now Hasbound Invasion because meta is getting faster and, and faster and it's harder to keep your heroes uh, healthy. And with these sprite cards, it really gets worse. So, you, you, you are not even guaranteed to win if you drag the games into like turn 12 or something because your decks just have too many bright. So I think those two are the main issues. Uh, their yeah. burn potential is too good and the, the combination of God and Wither is, is just too, too oppressive. Yeah, just to elaborate on the blights. Uh, in patch 108, Blightcrafter had the number of blights that it would add to your opponent's deck increased from 1 to 2. And Blighted Bishop had the number of blights it adds in at the end of your opponent's turn from 2 to 3. So if you play a Blight Crafter, and somehow you get a very low roll of it only triggering once, which is better than none, you know, they could eradicate it, and you know, you're only down one mana on a removal spell, which is still not a very bad trade. But if you get two Blights off of Blight Crafter, and you get three Blights off of Blighted Bishop, uh, Sidus, how much damage will that end up doing to your opponent? How uh, much damage do you now have guaranteed, unless you're able to, like, discard or dust it with righteous or something if you if, if they play all five i think it's 15 right uh-huh how much health does a hero start with 32 yeah yeah you play two cards and then if your opponent just can't kill you you get half of their health guaranteed yeah un unless they don't play it and that means a dead card in their hands yeah, five. Five dead cards. <laughs> uh, I played a Lotus right right after patch 105. I tried out a Lotus with Dream Calling for Blighted Bishop. I was playing against a Ada, a mono, <laughs> mono strength, and I got, I think, 20, 22 or something Blights in their deck, and their deck only started with 25 cards. Um... Just and I did even play Hexplosion, just the two cards. Uh, I did end up still losing that game though, because when I started getting the blights in, which was I don't know, turn three or four, uh, they already had enough cards in their hand to, or the cards they needed to win, so they didn't play their blights, or they played like three of them for a total of six damage, and um, that they were fine. Just leaving twenty dead cards in their deck. Yeah, that's pretty yeah. obvious. Yeah, it's it's a really volatile mechanic. Cause like in testing, I tested around with Blight Law, and Blight was very weak in testing. 
But one of the things that we'd find is that because, like, honestly, I think Coulter made a very, or I shouldn't say just Coulter, I think Coulter and Matta, because, like, I don't know whose idea exactly it was, but I think they had a very good idea in not making it where a blight could draw another blight. But a weird consequence of that is that eventually you hit a critical mass of blights in your opponent's deck where they actually stop really adding more. Because, like, think about it. Your opponent can, for the vast majority of cases, only really play one blight per turn. So if they have, like, five blights in their deck, and they have ten cards in their deck total, so five blights, five non-blights, they have a 50% chance of hitting a blight, at which point they will then draw one card, and, you know, they've one and one, so now it's, like, eight with four and four. In this setup, your opponent still has another 50% chance of hitting it, and you might think, oh, now it's 1 and 4. No, that's not how probability works. But if you take that same setup and you just swap it out with, instead of 5 blights in your opponent's deck, they have like 20 of them in there. Okay, they draw a blight 80% of the time, which is a fair bit higher, but still is not that close to a... 100% like you might expect it to be, despite that absurdly high number, and then your opponent just draws a normal card. And for the first five turns, like, your opponent still just, uh, slowly gets there. It will not be until, like, after all those turns have passed and your opponent has pretty much gone through their entire deck, the Blights really kick in. So I'm actually starting to think that you don't really need to try and jam a ton of Blights into your opponent's deck. Basically what you want to do is you just want to shove enough in there so that way, by the time the game would end, your opponent plays the last Blight. Which seems like an obvious thing whenever you say it out loud, but I don't think it's a very instinctive thing. Because it's like, oh, they take one damage for each. I should try and shove as many as possible in there. Uh, no, it's probably much better to just, like, put a couple in there, and then just run your opponent out of resources. Because those Blights, like, they, they stack damage fast. You don't actually need a ton. Well, the time that it totally beat me, I was playing a banjo, and it was a I was against a blight banjo. And this was the only time in the mini games I was playing against blight where the effect of them being in my deck and screwing up my draws didn't kill me. The blights themselves were the problem, and that was when I got to the point where I would have been out of decking, and I had to pay health every turn to out of deck, and I just couldn't do that. So I had no more cards, but I wasn't getting cards from elsewhere i was just drawing a blight every turn um and that's where it really got you is when you played every non-blight card in your deck then you only get blights and you have to pay him to get a card or you just die yeah whoa blight be upon me <laughs> so uh i mentioned earlier that i was trying a ct roof and the main reason i choose ct roof in this weird meta is because uh, we can actually run Nakamoto in CT decks, and that's exactly what I try to do. And oh. uh, in the previous version of most popular CT do, uh, usually you will be seeing a combination of 20 to 22 units and plus 8 to 10 spells. And uh, in the current variation I'm running, I'm trying 24 units plus, plus 6 spells. So there are not a lot of spells in my, my decks. And also, there will be some spells that uh, I, if I see that in my opening hand, and I'm definitely going to keep it. And uh, for this, I'm set, uh, talking about some spells like Tidest Iteration or Bone of Natos. 
So uh, the moment I got Nakamoto, usually there will be not much spell left in my decks. So uh, in my experience, when I play into uh, Iris or any other recent decks that run the bright combo, uh, and if they put, even if they put a lot of bright into my decks, if I manage to draw Nakamoto, it's, it's actually a plus for me because I, I almost always heal for 10 and remove all the bright. But, but just in case <laughs> that you are interested in playing this CT2, I have to warn you that it's not good. It's only good at removing <laughs> bright because CT2 is uh, more in the fair side of putting state onto the board, so they cannot compete with these Western decks. But I think introducing mechanics that is able to remove bright from your decks is uh, is probably necessary if we are going to introduce more bright card into the game. And I think uh, trying to figure out a way to remove bright in your decks is actually really fun. So one of oh, one yeah. yeah one of the way is obviously uh, Nakamoto. And you can also play something like right tears because uh, if you play right tears on the board and you play a bright, it's dusted instead of putting into your graveyard. So uh, just in case right tears stay alive, every bright you play will just cause you one heal in instead of increasing uh, recursively. So that's another option. And I'm really interesting to see more options like this to deal with Bright because it will introduce more uh, variety of archetypes. So, you know, yeah. uh, Horik Dig actually has a really cool option for getting rid of Blights. And that would be uh, Pharaonus's Command. It doesn't strictly get rid of them, it discards them. So if you have more Blights coming later, it can end up biting you. But uh, I've already been running Pharaonus's Command in a lot of my dig decks. Dig tends to create like a lot of random fodder in hand. Like Armus Medic will create the little 1-1 Armus Guards. Aether Lomare creates uh, Aether Whales, which are occasionally useless. So Command is already a good way to just dump some bad cards every now and then. But if you hold it until the late game, which is honestly pretty reasonable for a control deck, you can easily like just ignore two sets of blight with it and also like you know you draw two and you play a big something yeah that seems a little niche because they'd have to be on the left side of your hand meaning that you've played everything that started in your hand before you got the blights i mean i'm not saying it doesn't happen it just seems kind of like a niche scenario yeah well, it is niche i've done it before i won't say that i've done it a ton and usually you're going to actually play a command sooner. You'll dump something like, honestly, just dumping like a random heavy cavalry just to pull Root Hog out of your deck is really good. Dumping like King Ultran and Titanic to uh, summon Buffer is good. Just any of those things will generally be worth it. But you know, sometimes you just have like random spells on the side that you don't care about. You have a Mortal Blow and like a Jar Souls that you just aren't going to use. Just dump them. And, like, it's more so the fact that I was playing Pharaonus' Command anyways, so it kind of, like, it's useful in that situation as well. Right. No, I think Pharaonus' Command has shown itself to be a good card. 
the uh, version I was running, the target was Crystalopolops, whatever the hell his name is. Crystal Ceratops. Yeah, Crystalopolops. Don't diss my bad wolf. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, you get um, Bulwark from him, but if you yeah. don't, you have a lot of high-cost cards to get him out early. I, I think Veronis' Command has turned into a solid card. And oh, if yeah. you're out of cards, you get two cards. It's nice. Bro, Draw two up, is good. Like, these games don't exist anymore. But I actually kind of wish that, like, the uh, old, like, Axel Nix wish deck was still running around. Because I feel like Dig could actually just bully it into the ground. We play Bulwark. Oh, you killed it? Jar Souls. Cool. Uh, I play Buffer. It does things. Answer it. Oh, you did? Well, guess what? We have King Ultron into freaking Undragon's Pact, buffer round two, and it buffs all the guards. Oh, you got through all of that. All right, cool. Empty the Undercroft and Titanic. And after all of that is said and done, then I will play Pharaonus's Command, the out-of-deck actual Undragon, and just play buffer, you know, like a third or a fourth time. Who knows? Because I have, like, the one random Armus guard in my hand that you've been ignoring. <laughs> it's... I want I want my late game now. I'm actually prepared for it. I want to go brawl with somebody over like 20 turns. Yeah, in this aspect, I I, I actually like the Horridix a lot because uh, before Horridix so cool. actually appear in again, the only very very slow control decks are all exhaust deck. I mean, they just don't have a win con and then they try to win. Just because they mix wisdom and wisdom is just super good at Lagan. So uh Horic Deck is one of the real uh very, very slow control deck that is actually focusing on the board. And that actually is a, a was a missing piece from the meta. So it's a completely new archetype if if you ask me to define the deck. So I really like the inclusion to the flow meta. I'm glad you like it so much. All I need now is just one heart unit. Just one heart unit that has, like, take root as an attached spell. And it will be golden. It will be so good. I just need a little more ramp. Because, frankly, Horrocks ramping is kind of shitty. <laughs> Sorry, we are, not, we are not giving you that. <laughs> no! No, Sidus, please! Okay. Well, Like, Chromios, Chromiosaur no, only you can gives you me can minus run... two. Hold on, you can run one of my favorite combos that exists from Hexbound Invasion, which no, not very many people run. I don't know if you are or not, but you can run Howling Horn into uh, Foggy, so you get ramp easy. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Howling Horn is an interesting thing for Horik, because on one hand, yeah, you get like that early Hex Sentinel, Old Foggy, Scarabot, all are great targets for it. Alternatively, at 8 cost, we have Bulwark. If you discount things, you can hit Buffer, Ultron, or Titanic. And, like, Ultron and Titanic are not really good pulls off of it, but Bulwark is. So it's kind of, like, volatile in that respect. It can also be an out-of-deck 8-mana unit, which is honestly not bad at that point in the game. <sighs> My issue more so is that, like, again, that's volatile in the... Well, I don't like volatility, especially, like, in the decks that I play. I also, like... I'm kind of exaggerating with Horik's ramp. Horik has, like, a bunch of good, like, soft ramping tools. Like, Chromiosaur, Chill, Opal Golem. Great soft ramping. 
there's not really a way to run it currently, but Violet is actually a pretty good unit for control decks, because it's just, like, kind of free health and healing. It just does things. But uh, he doesn't have good hard ramping like uh, Wisdom has. There is no Gift to Vaya. There is no Take Root. Old Fogey exists, but it's just really slow, vulnerable, and your opponent can just, like, not kill it or silence it or ensnare it. And even if you do get it killed, it comes back later in, like, your Ancient Rise, and it's like, great, 0-3, what do I do now? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you have to you have to know what you're doing. I'd, I'd much rather this deck be easier. But I yeah. guess then, like, it would, it would be more accessible, and all the scrubs would play it and run Flame Phoenix. So maybe I shouldn't. Maybe it shouldn't get more ramp. You know what? If you introduce more ramp option into the game, everyone will be playing City Death. Maybe. I'm, I'm maybe happy with my City Death get the ramp. ramp. I, I played five fogies a game, and then I wed dead them. I got plenty of ramp. There's some more yeah. ramp for your Hork. You can wed dead. Honestly, I run red wed dead. I really like Carrion Crow. Carrion Crow is cool. Because you can, like, wet play it, wed dead itself. It, it's just the whole package. And then the question is like, okay, well, I also want to play Ancient's Rise, so what do I do? You can play Undergrowth, and then you pull it, and it hits, like, I don't know, uh, Deadweight, Boron's Ethos, Mortal Blow. Or maybe it's like, okay, well, what about Feronis? Again, you can do those things. It creates, like, interesting situations. I think that Carry On Crow is cool. But, uh, what if hypothetically... Yeah, once again, it'll, it'll get you a Blight, though. <laughs> well, honestly, if we get Blights with it at that stage in the game, that's kind of ideal. Because Blight is a zero mana draw. And like, Horic Dig, if it gets going with like these Armist guards, literally the last game I played before we all got on the call, I ended that game with 69 health. I shit you not. Horic Dig has like good healing. He can actually use those Blights. So like, I would not be that upset pulling a Blight with Carrion Crow. That's a good point. I, I, I do concede that that can be very helpful. Yeah, if you have the health to pay for it. Also, just like... You know, sometimes I don't want to draw Jar Souls. So, cool. You gave me filler that helps me avoid hitting Jar Souls with my Pharaonus Carrion Crow. Thanks. <laughs> and also, I just take this garbage card out of my deck. Like, it's it's all wins. Yeah. Uh, since we are still uh, on the top six of Bright, I, I'd like to make a prediction to the uh future coming bright card so Ooh. uh we already uh, we already have hex in the in the game right so uh the effect of hex is that uh, put un uh, unophobia into your deck and what unophobia does is to dust all one coast card in your graveyard and uh your often lose health uh, equal to the number dust plus one so what if they introduce a new bright card into the deck that put something like um, Bright Phobia into your deck. And what Bright Phobia does is dust all Bright in your opponent's deck and deal damage equal to the number dusted. Oh, it just plays them automatic. Cool. Yeah, that's interesting. I got a better one, though. Yeah, so uh, this was something that we all talked about a lot in Hexbound, like uh, all of that. A lot of the theming for it is that like you have like a bunch of these like good guys and they've been corrupted by the Hex Plague or whatever. Everybody knows I like dinosaurs. I think Titanic is a very cool card. Consider, hypothetically, Zombie Titanic. 
It is zombie dinosaur. And it does zombie dinosaur things. Nobody could really figure out what, like, what it would even do. But honestly, some kind of, like, big old blight payoff effect could be very cool. Or maybe it's just something like, for each 7 cost or higher card in your hand, you put a blight in your opponent's deck or whatever, I don't know. But, like, I'm putting that out there, mostly just put pressure in the game. We need a zombie dinosaur. It needs to happen. There will be no excuses if we do not get it. Okay, here's here's zombie dinosaur. It's a 411 with wither, and it auto attacks all the enemies for any attack lost by opponents at a blight to the enemy deck. Maybe it just has like slay at a blight to your opponent's deck. Yeah, you could just slay multiple things. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. How much mana does that cost? Like nine. Sure. Maybe yeah. ten. It is it is adding a lot of blights into your opponent's deck. <laughs> Speaking of Horrocks, since we've been on that, I think we can move on from Blight for a while. Um, you wanted to talk about Empty the Undercroft? Uh, yes, bacon? yes. Empty the Undercroft is the it is the diamond in the rough of Patch 108. I, I shouldn't phrase it that way, because like, Patch 108 does have a bunch of like good changes, in my opinion. Like I, I played with the Shredder change. I played a fair bit of Heat Wave. I think that's very cool. Drone Surge was a good change. I like the overall idea of Blights. I just think it was too much too soon. But uh, Empty the Undercroft is freaking great. So it was already pretty good at 10 mana. But there is some cool stuff that you can do with it at 8. And frankly, stuff that I hadn't realized yet. Uh, first off, with King Ultron being added to the game. Yeah, so King, King Ultron is a 10 mana 3-3 with armor. And that's not very great on its own, but it does play five armor guards. And this is really good for Hork Dig, because we've got lots of ways to buff them, with like Bulwark, Execute, Hex Sentinel, but most importantly, Armus Medic. Because historically, or Dig has suffered with healing, but the introduction of Armus Medic actually like really fixes that. It's quite great. So what do we do? Well, we play King Ultron, usually for eight mana, Praise be upon Chromiosaur. We will immediately sacrifice it with Undragon's Pact to play Buffer from our discard pile, or Bulwark of Armus, or maybe just Chromiosaur. It really doesn't matter. What's important, though, is that like we just get it out of the way. Because then we've just set up like a really good Empty the Undercroft play. You know, it's just a ton of Armus guards, plus Buffer or Bulwark. Alternatively, other cool things you can do. Death's King was a card that I had overlooked mostly because I see it as a more aggressive card, but uh, I've been trying to reevaluate all the options Dig has. And Death King is really good with Empty the Undercroft, because basically you can just turn it into a 5-mana spell. So, on turn 11, if Death's King is one of the top 6 units in your discard pile, you know, you just have an empty board, you play Empty the Undercroft, you probably resurrect like at least one dash unit, or an armor guard, or something. Literally just like, I mean, you're guaranteed to have something to sacrifice with it, unless you literally just uh, did not have anything. Wait, no, it's not It's not turn 11, it's turn 13. Yeah, you can just sacrifice anything, turn Empty the Undercroft into a 5-mana spell, and then drop Cosrath on the exact same turn, and just obliterate whatever board you gave your opponent. And that sounds like a lot of hoops to jump through, but also you just built a massive board. If you're running Mushka, you buff that up. If you have Chromiosaur in there, you do cool things with that. 
Notably, because it actually kills something, if you resurrect with Pharaonus or Bulwark, you actually create the space to get the full value out of their effects, which is really handy. And, you know, it's just generally a good card. It's a 4-mana 3-5 with lifesteal and wither. And if your opponent doesn't immediately kill it, you can just ramp into silly things. Aside from that, there's not too much more that the change does. Hope is still very good with it, although it conflicts with Death's King. Root Hog, as always, just does good stuff with it. With it. I mean, generally, it's also like one of the uh, rare things that can actually swing a game against Iris. If they already have like a Mengelong in the discard pile, that might be a bit tricky. But if you happen to pull like Root Hog and a Steam Knight or something, then like, you know, you just shut them down and you just have to wear them out. Yeah, uh, I'm a fan of the card. I found it useful almost every time I got it. When I was playing Dig, um, very rarely would I have to put off playing it because it would help the opponent too much. You know, it does happen where you're like, okay, in this instance, I don't get enough positive differential between my benefit and their benefit to play it. But maybe wait another turn and they've played four cards, so they're only getting two and you're getting six. At that point, you're getting so much benefit comparative to theirs that it seems like I was always able to find a spot to put Empty the Undercroft out there. Yeah. Yeah, and of course, like, you know, the cool thing about Dig now is that with Pharaonus's command, uh, you can totally run Empty the Undercroft, and if it happens to not work that game, cool. Discard it. Move on. <laughs> and like, you know, you have that you have that versatility and that's mm -hmm. so emblematic of the Heart Prism. Yeah, so besides from the combo perspective from the card, uh actually you can also try to build your deck into uh more mid-range mana and try to play MTD on the curve on curve and uh, if you are playing a board ward against your opponent uh, you will be benefit from uh, Holbrick being having some uh, guard interaction and board, board bar volcanic such as Mushkart and Bio and also uh, you can you can run a lot of dashing unit in this kind of variation. For example, you can run SLMU and Scalabot and Steam Knight um, and Chromio Sword, something like that. So after you play empty the Amdercrow, even if it also revives a lot of units for your opponent, uh, since you got all the dash unit, you probably will be the first player to choose uh, what units to kill on the opponent's side because they have dash. So they will not be uh, having the best benefit of their units because uh, they are killed e uh, before before even reaching their turn. So that's, that's actually also an option. Uh, I, I tried a few games to play empty the undergrowth on curve if I managed to play a good uh, final risk command or something like Stephen. And if I managed to pull uh, one of Mushkart and Bio, and some of my units have dash. Usually, I will be having a really good uh, result. So uh, the card that do similar stuff was Undergrowth, Jar of Souls, and Ancient Rise. Uh, I feel like Empty the Undergrowth is more uh, proactive, pro a proactive play instead of just a value play. So um, I like the mana cost change a lot because. Uh, in previous version, it costs 10 mana, 
And if a card costs 10 mana, you can't really play it in uh, in a deck and call your deck mid-range. But 8 mana is possible as a, something like a ultimate spell for a mid-range deck, and it, it gives me exactly that vibe, so I really like the aspect a lot. Yeah, it's just cool. Okay, I guess there's two more things about the patch to talk about, or maybe three, but we can do it really quickly. I think Rothound just got slightly better. Um, it's good in these zoo decks. You say you were running City Zoo. Did you run Rothound? Uh, no, um, I don't. Yeah, I found, it, I found it okay in some decks. It's still not going to see a lot of play, I don't think. Um, all of the plus one, uh, all the plus one plus ones except for your favorite one, um, Bacon got buffed. Overheart, um, St Star Station, um, and Eclipse Mummy, they all got slightly buffed, but health should help them a little bit, be a little bit more useful. I was playing Eclipse Mummy for a while this week, and, you know, it's felt pretty much the same, but, you know, the whole thing's pretty impressive right now to get yeah. some volume. Yeah. There was one other change that I kind of ignored that I think actually does have more of an impact. And that is the Hexed Siren change, or what I call the most kissable card. Hex Siren went from a 5 cost to a 4 cost, and it lost one health. It's a Wither Dash unit in Intelligence that has a Slay ability. The next spell you play with a base cost 6 or higher has negative 2 cost. Um, this has been pretty interesting and a better benefit than I originally anticipated. And at 4 cost, you can kind of get, uh, get that benefit right away on a 7 or 6 cost spell. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think it's definitely better after the Patreon 08, but uh, as far as I'm concerned, it currently have a bug that if you trigger curse they effect and your opponent play a, a spell of base code 6 or higher, you will lose a buff. And um, the, this issue has been brought, uh, brought to the game design team and they, they promised to fix this run. But before this get fix i think uh sometimes you, you you will be very frustrated if you often play a, a high cost yeah spiel and yeah yeah i i mean with that being said yeah as long as that's not working it doesn't work but i was able to play you know a six cost ether surge which was pretty sick and um get some good spells out of that when i was testing the card so um yeah Obviously, when it's not working, it's not working. But um, hopefully, we can see more use out of it in the future with the big spell yeah. decks. Yeah, I will. I will. I would like to compare this card to Mad Hat because, uh, uh, even even so, their their text is uh, fundamentally different. But usually, uh, they if you build a deck that uh, utilizing this card. Uh, most of the time, you you will be hoping to reduce the cost of a really high high cost spell. So even if you run Mad Hat, uh, you you should be looking into something like under undergrowth or Elder Search. So uh, in this vibe, they kind 
like like kind of works similarly. So, uh, Matt head is the two calls three to guard with a which die to banner, and hex siren is a four calls with a dash to five. Um, I think if if Matt head is a two three, I will definitely run Matt head instead of hex siren, but uh. Being a three two usually mean it it is uh, two calls reduce the uh, one of the spell in your hand by by two and deal three damage to your opponent because most of the time uh, a player will be just using banner to remove it uh, and hex siren uh, even though it calls two more mana is way more sticky compared to madhead because you got to choose which units you want to trade into and it has five heals so. It does not really die that easily, and even if it uh, does not have any uh, good target to trigger the slay effect, uh, it still have wizard, which means uh, in some worst case scenario, this card still can be a four cost minus two minus two, and maybe leave a very small body on the board such. For example, if you trade into something like uh, uh, 3-6, for example, uh, it will still be a 2-2 on the board. So uh, I think this card have a way better floor compared to Madhead, and they kind of have a same ceiling. So it's a really a, a good card if they fix the issue. Hey, Sinus, uh, can, hey. can you answer this question for me? So the... The text on Hex Siren specifically says, Slay, the next spell you play with a base cost six or higher has negative two cost. So let's say in your opening hand you had Undergrowth and Mad Hat. Mad Hat hit Undergrowth twice, so it's a fair cost. Then you kill someone with Hex Siren. Is Undergrowth a two cost now because its base cost is six or higher? Uh, yeah, I, I, I think uh, if the... Uh, in in a way, they write these tests. It 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 should work like that. Yeah. Yeah. But just in case, I am opening the sandbox mode on live, like right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yo, speaking of Cytus, you never responded to my message. I finally know the puzzle I want to make. Oh really? Yeah. What's the highest rating of difficulty you have? Uh, is five? Yeah, it's gonna be a five star. Okay, cool. So, uh, maybe we can introduce the, your idea in next episode, or do you want to talk it right now? Uh, I don't. I don't want to spoil it. I will just say that the solution requires like five layers of the most esoteric game knowledge you can consider. <laughs> okay, that's that's not really really exciting. So I just open the sandbox mode and test the uh, the question lab blank handle X. So even if you reduce the cost of one uh, spell that cost six or higher originally, uh, you can still reduce it by further minus two cost with hex sirens say effect. So what I did is I put a undergrowth into my hand and I change its cost to four. And then I kill an Exodotio with Hex Siren. Now it co now my undergrowth costs two only. So yeah. Dude, that's so brutal. Hex Siren just murdered Exodotal. Like what a poor animal to to kill with this underwater beast. 
Yeah, Honestly, know. after all of these stupid Titus decks, I really don't care. Yeah, no, we can die. Axolotls were harmed in the making of this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, that's, that's the Axolotl's revenge, because everything, every time I want to test something with Slay effect, I always summon an Axolotl for my opponent. And, <laughs> and now those Titus are... <laughs> yeah, those Titus uh, are just playing... Uh, uh, zero twenty-four XL auto something, and they show badge it, and you kill me next turn. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. Real talk. What do you guys think of Shield Bash? Uh, currently, and I said this last stream. Currently, Shield Bash is my most disliked card in Skyweaver. Really, I quite dislike it, but most dislike. I that is fair, but that is ooh, that is big. <laughs> Yeah, I've I've committed to Shield Bash is my least favorite card in Skyweaver right now. Yeah, I don't write, like 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 the card, but I run it in my venture deck, so I cannot really complain. Well, you gotta run it. I mean, no, no, that's exactly what you do. Yeah, you you say this card is so broken, I can't do anything but run it. It's exactly yeah. what I do all the time whenever like strength things happen to be broken. Yeah, it's just. If only strength got buff spells even remotely close to Shield Bash's quality, the game the game would be a much happier place. And by happier, I mean I would be much happier because I would be playing the broken absurd strength buff spell. That is Shield Bash two. Yeah. So uh, let me ask you guys a question: Did do if you play Wisdom, did you ever play Shield Bash into a unit with? power equal to health or power higher to health oh, i don't yeah. i don't think so right no no it's just it's two mana shield plus it buffs their health yeah like that's just it's if you have any board whatsoever it's basically a two mana kill spell because of how stats are distributed yeah so the, the, the reason I asked question is because in in, in show batch current form is is essentially just plus plus x plus one where x equal to the heals of uh target ally unit right so i think yeah. even if and they shield. remove even if they remove the plus one heals uh from the tech it's still a good card right oh hell yeah yeah i think that's one possible nerf to the card if we are ever going to see a nerf I would definitely like to see the shield gone. I would like my unit that I spent money to develop to actually do something. Yeah, I mean, if it didn't... Honestly, that's a huge part of the problem. Is it solving things like roots for cheap and getting rid of hex for cheap? Basically, you spend all this stuff trying to annoy their card. You wither it, you hex it, you put it on roots, and then this undoes all of that instantly yeah yeah it's just a big middle finger a while back on the podcast we were talking about like the uh, new hex faction card and it's like oh do you think that the uh, hex ability of this is going to be used at all straight up whenever i said no it's too easy to get rid of enchantments this was like one of the top three cards i was thinking of i was thinking of like this righteous and buster like those are the three <laughs> and like buster has been nerfed righteous as much as it irritates me personally, probably shouldn't be nerfed. But, like, Shield Bash is just stupid. Yeah. Righteous I mean, is the only thing keeping me in line. 
Yeah. I mean, yeah. without Righteous in the meta, I, I, I win too easy. I mean, yeah, the way I've got, I've got this whole question that I still haven't resolved about like how death effects are balanced. Because it seems to me like they're generally balanced along the lines of if you want to do well against decks with death effects, you need to be teched against them. But I'm actually not certain if that's the healthiest way to have things. Because then it's like, oh, uh, this death effect deck is really good. I'm just going to jam a ton of things that also happen to dust. Because a lot of like dust options in Skyweaver are very free. Like Cause Wrath, you probably play that without the dusting. Chomp is pretty dang good without the dusting. Lightning Vial wouldn't be good without its dust effect. It would just be, like, strictly worse than a lot of other things. But, you know, it's a two-mana dust option that kills something. And I kind of wonder, like, if maybe dusting is too easy in Sky. I was really happy We haven't really had the meta to ask that, though. I was happy they didn't put out any new dusting cards with Hex... Um, uh, Hexbound Invasion. Just because I think there are enough... Dusting is easy. There's oh, there are so many. plenty of dusting in the game. But as far as its answer to... I, I think there's too much dusting, but as long as they don't release any more for a long time, suddenly the percentage of dusting will go down and the choice to use it will cost more. Uh, opportunity cost. Yeah. But um, with, with Grave City specifically, I think the deck is ridiculously strong. One of the strongest decks in the game. And how it works is no one's playing it someone really good starts playing it it starts winning incredibly and then even iris or a couple other decks start putting lightning vial and they put righteous in there especially righteous or a couple other tech cards in their deck and then city starts losing and then they take the tech cards out and then city starts winning and it's just back and forth yeah. whenever they put in or take out the tech cards it kind of controls grave city success yeah, the only thing I wonder about is I think that, like, you just always run the tech cards. Because, like, Ensnare is great against Death City. Absolutely. Unless they happen to have, like, the Wed Dead, or if they have the Molten Heart, then, like, okay, they play Old Fogey. You Ensnare it in the Velvet board, and then they're just sitting there twiddling their sums. It is incredibly good. Like, Lightning Vial. A lot of decks just run Death Effect units. Like, you, it's kind of hard to avoid running at least a few Death Effect units. Or even if you're like Hork Dig, and you don't run that many, and you actively try to avoid them, you're still going to need those units later. And even like, even if they don't have any death effect units, you know, it can still be 2 mana, deal 3 to face, which, uh, do not underrate. So like, I guess the point I'm trying to get at is that I feel like a lot of the what should be tech options for dealing with death effects aren't really tech options proper, they're just good. Yeah, they don't, co they don't cost enough, maybe but... Yeah, maybe that's maybe that's all right for the game. I don't know. There haven't I haven't seen a meta where like death effects have just been completely rampant and absurd. Like we've kind of well, had like the city cheat stuff of old, but that was like puppet right master, when Festival really... Cannon came out. That was pretty abusive. Well, yeah, but that was that was one card in particular, not the mechanic of death effects in and of themselves. As uh, opinionated and biased as I am, I try to be a little precise with things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a work in progress. So, yeah. We, we, we was talking about the, the shield attachment from shield bash. Oh, yeah. Screw that card. Screw that card. All my homies hate shield bash. 
yeah, that, that's the official bacon position on Shield Bash. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't really like these cards that can override bad attachment and be aggro and at, at, a, at the same time because uh, uh, in recent patches, we, we are also observing the uh, great downfall of the intellect prison. And uh, when we look at intellect prison's defensive option, I think something like Quick Mind or Ivy, this card has been performing really well in last year. Uh, but uh, after the uh, latest two expansion, there's just too much uh, attachment override, and it's yeah, not really buster. it's not really feeling safe. Even if you uh, root root all the units on the upside of the board, because they can just override them with a uh, very powerful spell and also bring great tempo onto the board at the same time. So um, the the one major feature of Skyweaver that have really attracted me is the attachment override uh, interactions. But I think show best a Buster is already a very very badass unit before it's nerfed. And even so, it's so good. It still costs five mana to remove a certain negative attachment and be lead aggro. But I mean, show bash freaking costs only two, and in some rare cases, it actually more fearsome comparing to playing a Buster Square on five, right? Uh huh. I think most yeah, of the time really... it's more gruesome. I mean, we were just talking about Blightcrafter. All of a sudden, Blightcrafter comes a seven-seven with Shield and Wither that gets that and that's that's like a low end card to get shield bash on obviously axe of total now we're talking uh an 11 11 with shield and guard don't forget it also gives guard or glizbot can buff itself yeah. or yeah glizbot can buff itself and then you know that becomes and it's, it's even... a four man or five mana seven seven with dash it's even and if you don't immediately kill it it just buffs the rest of their stuff it's even worse right now with the zero cost saijin secrets where they all of a sudden they're getting plus five for zero mana, and then for two mana they're getting that plus six um, attack and guard and shield. Yeah. Well, you can't leave stuff on board. Like, even if your opponent plays secrets, it's like, okay, usually with buff spells like that, a good counter to them is like, oh, you know, just wither the power away. Because it's a lot of health, it's not a lot of power. You can do that with certain things. Uh, so, like, Oni Smith. I feel like that should be, like, a relatively decent counter to it. You know, if your opponent, like, trades into it or whatever, you know, you take care of that. But because it specifically looks at the health of the unit, and Wisdom units are all actively designed where they just have a gazillion points of health, not only are they incredibly hard to remove, but if you don't spend excessive resources every turn to clean them off the board, and all of a sudden your opponent gets to have agility quality pressure. Yeah. And it also makes the prison uh, identity to a certain degree because uh, when we look at the five prison in Skyweaver, the strange prison should be the one that is really good at buffing their own unit, right? Uh-huh. But if you take in take a look into the meta right now, the all the best buffing option is in the wisdom prison. So that is kind of a uh confusing if you want me to find a word to describe it 
because uh, in terms of yeah. how how the how the how the world of fighting the board was, Western prison right now re- looks like the real strange prison, and strange prison looks like a uh, I don't know janky version of Western prison, and yeah, and that's really weird for me, right? Yeah, this hasn't been so true in the open beta, but in closed beta, a lot of us would joke about like. Wisdom's flavor is that it does everything, and I know that there are like some people. Uh, I'm not going to name any names. Like, will get upset by that argument. They're like, "No, wisdom is so bad. Giga Bloom is no longer a four mana spell. Uh, it's so unfair." Yeah, yeah, I hear you. But like, I mean, it has finishers. We've seen aggro decks from Wisdom for like the past several months now. It has all of these like wacky things. If Deco was an agi card, everybody would know it's busted. If Potion Seller was an Agi card, everybody would know it's busted. But it's in Wisdom, so nobody really cares. At the same time, yeah, it has all these wacky bus spells. For some reason, even though it's actively called out that Wisdom should not have a lot of burn options, Wisdom actually, like, has a lot of great burn options now. Aside from, like, all the Blight sayings, which are relatively new, for some reason Scorch and Burn to Crisp can both hit face, which end up enabling a lot of burn, not just for Wisdom, but for other prisms, like Burninate was a burn option that, like, Burn Fox was running for a while. Uh, Brimstone, another strength card, which is also another strength card that generates a Wisdom spell, thus making it good. It's randomly this uh, Ember Wolf that just does free damage. What else was there? There was something else. Yeah, there's all the cheat stuff that it can do. It had Dream Calling. It had the 8-mana Aether Whale. It has Singen Secrets. Oh, yeah, and also uh, in all these new decks, aside from Soul Pyre Titan, you have Menglong. Which is a 7-7 that whenever you have a big hand, because you play Mixoltron, you just drop it. And it does like 7 points, maybe 8 points of burn damage to your opponent's face. Because, you know, Wisdom does everything. I, uh, I really think that Wisdom could be very cool. Honestly, in most other games, Wisdom would be the prism that I play. But it's just so much of an everything prism that it actively upsets me. Like I love like the lore of it and like the design and all that. I think it's just one of the things we can talk about with wisdom that is another issue is it has so many unique cards that do very special things that even if you're running like an all agi deck or whatever and you want hey you know what I actually want um oh. Giza as well. I want Giza and Shield Bash, you know, because I want to draw my Soul Pyre Titan. I want Shield Bash as well, and just give me five Wisdom cards that make my deck better, and I can forget about the rest, and I have no downside that, you know, at all. Yeah. Yeah, like, that's something I always think about with, like, the Mono Prisms. Like, you have the option of either Ada aggro, or alternatively, you can play Titus aggro. And if you have, like, Nico and Shield Bash and Giza all just floating around in there, and also Incinerate and Glizbot, I really I really don't get why you would play Ada. It's like the five cards consistency really that much better than having access to Hydrate. Oh, so uh, maybe I can answer this uh, question. So... Uh, re- the reason you would want to play mono prison have to be uh there 
there need to be some really really strong early game card that you don't have a lot of way to tutor it so so for example pre-nerf shogun is probably worth enough to run mono other because uh if you open with uh double mana crystal into shogun into another guard unit uh it has been really really uh, good in patch 107 uh in some rare cases it it, it can even win you the game on the spot um, but after Shogun got changed to 3-3, three, three, uh, I will say 80% of the uh, reason you would run Monoada was gone because now you don't have that, uh, the, the option is that, which is strong enough in the earliest stage of the game. And if the uh, strongest card in your prison is not uh, the cost of the strongest card in your prison is not as low as one or two. For example, uh, let's say if if Mush card is the strongest card in the strange prison, uh, it still costs five. So, uh, when the card costs these higher, you will be have a lot of different options to try to draw it outside from just having it in your op opening hand. So you can try to deck building around. Uh, trying to draw it on before you have five mana, and in Skyweaver you have a lot a lot of way to tutor cards, so that's not really difficult. So it kind of uh, eliminate the reason to run mono prison just to have a uh, five less card in your deck to be able to have a better possibility to draw it in your opening hand. So it kind of has to be a very strong card and very low cost at the same time. And right now, uh. The strongest card in the meta does not feed the said uh, uh, condition, so I, I I don't feel like there are any reason to run mono prison right now. Uh, maybe except for wisdom because <laughs> because wisdom is too good right now. And if you take the uh, if you take a look at popular deck list, you you may even see some uh, dual prison decks running like twenty five. Wisdom cards, so they will be fine running mono. You know, I was thinking as you were talking, you probably there might be a world where you get away with mono lotus, and you just like try to dream call into either cloud sloth or uh, blighted bishop, and then the rest of your deck is just like you know aggro deck, matchstick, blizzbot, shield bash, giza, yeah, mengalong, all of those things. Yeah, it's actually the same reason we just uh, mentioned in the Adalu example, because you can play Dream Coding as early as uh, on turn 2. So it, it's also a, a type of very, very early threat. And if you run Mono Lotus, the possibility to draw uh, one of the Dream Coding or Eldritch Roar will be way higher compared to uh, running them on, on a Dual Prism decks. You also have really good odds of hydrate. Yeah. Just drop that on turn one. Yeah. Jack up your consistency a lot. Alright, guys. Thanks for the insight on using mono prism decks. It's always something to con interesting to think about uh, when deck building. Because some people are like, I'll never do it. Some people really want to do it. And there are reasons to do it. And uh, when you're building a deck, take an extra second to consider, will this benefit from five less cards? Because um, sometimes the answer is yes. We got to wrap up today. We're just at time. So if you guys have a, 
like uh, two or three sentences to wrap up, or we can talk next week. Okay, sure. Uh, I would just like to reiterate that I do still highly enjoy the game and love it very much. I am critical because I enjoy it so much, and if I had to rank my enjoyment of the game overall on a scale of uh, 1 to 10, I would probably give it like a uh, 8.75. Oh. That's nice. Final thoughts, Sidus? Make sure that that is clear. <laughs> we 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 say our thing is because we love it. You know, we're, we're the guys, we have to express ourselves, but we're expressing ourselves, we're taking the time to make the podcast, we're taking the time to create content because we love the game and we want the game to succeed, and we want people also to not feel alone in their opinions. You know, not be yeah. on ladder and going, I really hate Shield Bash. Does anyone else hate Shield Bash? Yeah, some people do. And that's, we're all playing the same game. We all like it. We want to. Yeah. And I want to get more people into I it. I also like, to, yeah, I also like to think that, you know, if you only say the nice things, and this also goes both ways, if you only say the mean things, then you don't really ever, you kind of lose, like, credibility. Because it's like, ah, you're never satisfied, so why do I care? Or, oh, you only say pleasantries to me, but that doesn't actually tell how to improve. Okay, let's wrap it up there. Are you good, Cytus? Uh, 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 I, I don't have additional okay. thing to say, but I will still try to break the Iris meta in the upcoming week. <laughs> tell us how to do it. I have no idea, to be real, but I will still try. All right. I will be slaving away on the puzzle because i want to make something that actively hurts people's brains and i'll be playing death city until i see too much righteous all right everybody have a wonderful day night and life i'll see you next week